Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. Last week, we took a look at the message Jesus preached. He himself was the center of his own message. And we did this to refute the false Unitarian belief that God the Father is the only person of the Godhead. Of course, God is triune. There are three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unitarians claim that Jesus was merely a created being. We saw that Christ's message, his message, was even more about himself than it was the Father. Of course, the Father is equally as important, and we are instructed by the Bible to worship both in the same way. Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I mentioned that on the show last week. It comes directly out of Philippians chapter 2. And I had a Unitarian tell me after the show that, you know, Jesus, he humbled himself below the Father, so checkmate. And apparently that was supposed to be a showstopper of sorts. And he read the two following verses to back up his case. He read, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so I asked him, I I asked, do you think that Jesus humbling himself, do you think that brought him more honor and glory, or did it diminish his honor and glory? And this guy, this Unitarian, he said, well, I, I mean, he humbled himself, and so that's that's kind of the opposite of being glorified, so uh, no, his glory was diminished. And that's what this Unitarian said in response to me. And I told him that that was very silly. It's very ironic that I quote a verse that shows Jesus, who is in the form of God, as being equal with God, and he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And then this guy, this Unitarian, he acts as if he uh, is catching me off guard by quoting the next two verses, but very conveniently, he stops quoting Paul right then and there. Jesus humbled himself, period. End of sentence, shut the book, we don't need need to read any more. But it's not the end. Paul then goes on to further explain. He says, therefore, and remember that whenever the Bible says, therefore, it's always a good practice to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And so Paul says that Jesus is equal with God. He humbled himself, dot, 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 therefore, and then he goes on to conclude his thought. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul here makes it explicitly clear that Jesus humbling himself brought him more honor and more glory, not less. The Son was exalted through his humility. By the way, the same is true of us. If we humble ourselves, the Father, he will exalt us. Jesus taught us humility and submission, and he led by example. And so the timeline is Jesus was equal with the Father. He was in the form of God. 
He then humbled himself and became like a bondservant. And then the father even further glorified his son through that. But regardless, we spent a considerable amount of time looking at Jesus' words last week, and we saw that he himself was the center of his own message. And so a lot of the prophets and the apostles, they came teaching about God. They were not teaching about themselves. They were teaching about this higher being, this this God who was above them. Jesus, on the other hand, he taught about himself even more than he taught about the Father. And of course, as Christians, we believe the entire Bible, and even further, the entire world, we believe that it's all God-centered. All free will beings are either moving closer toward him or further away from him with every action. Every action is taken either in rebellion against him or in submission to him. And so if there uh, were a created being that wanted to focus more on himself than on God, um, that would be immoral. That would be sinful. That would be egotistical. And so there are these so-called Christians, these Unitarians, who say that Jesus is not God, and these so-called Christians fail to see that if Jesus is not God, then Jesus, he would be sinful, he, he would be egotistical, he would be immoral, he would be prideful. And Jesus Christ, what we end up seeing when we read the Bible, is that he must either be regarded as God himself or he must be ignored. You cannot say that he was a wise moral teacher and not God. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. If he was a wise moral teacher, then that also means he was God because he taught that he was our God and that he and he taught that he was worthy of our worship. Now, as a brief aside, I mentioned that all actions are taken either in submission to God or in rebellion against him. I've had some pushback on this idea and I'd like to elaborate briefly. There are some very clear examples of actions taken either in submission or in rebellion of God, such as reading your Bible or having an abortion. One is a clear example of submission, and the other is a clear example of rebellion against him. However, there are seemingly amoral actions, filling your car with gas, neither moral nor immoral, sinners and saints alike, they both fill their gas tanks. However, all unbelievers, they are always living in a constant state of sin and rebellion against God. During every moment, they are choosing to not submit themselves before him. Uh, And for the unbeliever, regardless of their situation, they only have one item on their to-do list, which is not sinful. And that is coming to Christ and submitting before him. That is the only thing that they can do that is not immoral. Because uh, with any other thing they do, they are delaying the moment of coming to him. And so filling their car with gas, they are at a bare minimum saying, I'm not going to come to Christ right now. I'm putting that on hold. That's at a bare minimum. Right now I'm busy. Right now I'm filling up my car with gas gas. And if you are, you know, a a parent, perhaps a homeschool parent, you know the value of the old adage, the right action, right attitude, right 
away. And that is true with God as well. If we are not going to him right away, then we are sinning. We are living in a state of sin. And so it's not necessarily that filling the car with gas is a sinful action. That's not inherently sinful by any means. What it is, is it's putting off or ignoring Christ that is a sinful action. That is what is sinful. And there's this proverb. It's not a biblical proverb, uh, but it's a proverb of a man who dies and then he goes to the afterlife. And there's this fence between heaven and hell. And he's sitting on the fence. He's taking in his surroundings. He's looking at both sides, heaven and hell. And God and his angels come up to him and they plead with him, you know, hey, come with us, come with us to heaven. And then on the other side of the fence, Satan and his legions, they come and they argue that he should hate God and he, he should return with them to hell. Anyways, they both, they make their cases and then they leave him alone to decide. And they both go back to their respective abodes to give him some time to decide. And the guy, he continues to just sit on the fence. That's all he's doing. He's sitting on the fence. He sits there for a few hours thinking and thinking. And finally, finally, Satan, he comes back and grabs him off the fence and starts dragging him to hell. And the guy, he screams and he says, you know, hey, I hadn't decided yet. And Satan says, yeah, well, I own the fence. And the point of this proverb is that indecision is itself a decision. So sitting on a fence, that isn't inherently sinful. Filling your car with gas, that isn't inherently a sin. But not running to God and not relying on him and not serving him and bringing him honor and glory immediately, that is what is sinful. And so you can bring honor and glory to God while filling your gas, or you could be in rebellion against him while filling your gas. And so that is why I say that every action taken is either in rebellion against him or in submission to him. And all of that, all of that, that's just an interesting roundabout way of conveying the point that everything in the universe is God-centered. And so Jesus, he seemingly took the focus and placed it primarily on himself even more than he placed it on the Father. And either he was sinning by doing this or he himself was God. And the Unitarians at this point, they are faced with a uncomfortable decision. Either Christ was a sinner or they are wrong about their Unitarianism. Those are the two intellectual choices before them. And if you are a Unitarian watching this, I recommend you choose the second. Admit that you are wrong about God and avoid straying even further away into a second heresy, claiming that God is a sinner. By the way, I do not throw the term heretic around lightly. I am extremely conservative in my usage of that word. I actually intend on doing a show sometime here in the near future called The Boy Who Cried Heretic just to illustrate how uh, the word is so incredibly overused, in, especially in theological circles, that it, it's pretty much lost all meaning, and that's really unfortunate. Um, I actually, I recently had someone call me a heretic because I disagreed with them on the metaphysics of time. And so uh, that's a relatively bizarre reason to call someone a heretic. And so I, I use that word very sparingly because now it, it, all it means is someone who disagrees with me. And so typically if you hear someone call someone else a heretic, 
all that really mean, really means is that person disagrees with me. And so I, I now I have reservations around using that word, yet even with my reservations around the word, I still use it to describe a Unitarian. Rejecting the divinity of the divine is not acceptable. Now, last week we went through through our extremely long list of Bible verses showing that Christ views himself as the center. He is the center of his own message. And we then began to, uh, but we didn't finish this, we, be, we began to go through our list of the more traditional verses supporting the divinity of Christ and the, tr- the Trinity within that context, knowing that Christ was the center of his own message. And I would like to go through that here today, that, that verse list. Um, and these verses, they show that like the Father, Jesus is called God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you pair that with um, John 1.14, which explains who this Word was. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, who was it that became flesh and dwelt among us? Well, very clearly, that was Jesus Christ, and that was the Word. And then John 1, 1, uh, John 1 verse 1 says, and the Word was God. So, Jesus was God. We also see in John twenty twenty eight, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. By the way, notice the him there is singular. It's not like he's talking to two two separate uh, entities. He's not talking to Jesus and saying, my Lord, and then looking up and saying, and my God. He said to him, to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He's talking to one person there. We also see Romans 9 uh, verse 5, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Christ came, he is the eternally blessed God. You can't get any more explicit than that. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, God and Savior here, this refers to the same person. We know this because of the Grandsville Sharps rule. This is a Greek grammar rule, uh, and it shows that in situations like this, it's, it's talking about the same person. And if you are curious on that, I gave a message at Agape Kingdom Fellowship on the Trinity. I go into some detail on that, um, and that is on the Dominic and your YouTube channel if you're curious. But essentially, if the if there are the Greek word and, if it mentions two um, two entities on each side of the and, and they agree in case in gender and in uh, number, I believe, is the Grandsville Sharp rule, then it's referring to the same person. And I go into detail on that in my uh, presentation at Agape Kingdom Fellowship. Uh, we also see Hebrews 1.8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So to the Son, your throne, O God. So referring to the Son as 
O God. Uh, 2 Peter 1.1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the Grandsville Sharps, the Grandville Sharps rule, that applies here. Uh, we also see Luke 1.16-17, uh, John, he will... Uh, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, obe- the, the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, John turned many of the children of Israel to Jesus, the Lord their God. Uh, Then we see in Psalm 90, verse 2, in comparison with a prophecy about Jesus from Micah uh, 5, verse 2, Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from your ever... Uh, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then compare that with Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And so Psalm 90, verse 2 describes God as uh, from everlasting to everlasting. And Micah 5, verse 2, describes Jesus as from everlasting. Uh, We also have verses that show the Father, like Jesus, receives worship, or Jesus, like the Father, receives worship. Matthew 2, 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. Matthew 14, 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And they, they worshipped him there. Matthew 28, 9, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. John nine thirty eight says, then the Lord said, uh, sorry, then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This is Jesus being worshiped. Hebrews 1 6 says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let the angels of God worship him. And by the way, this term here, firstborn, uh, in my uh, study at Agape Kingdom Fellowship, I went into some depth on that word, and that word very clearly shows that firstborn is saying the first priority, my, my number one, my, my go-to, so to speak. So it's not saying, um, it's not giving a timeline saying that this is the first, the first creature born, but it's saying that this is the highest priority or the highest value. Uh, another example of this is Israel is referred to as the firstborn nation. And of course, there were other nations that existed before Israel, but this, it goes to show that Israel, when it uses that term firstborn, it means that it is the most important or the most valuable. Um, and then continuing, or, or and when, so when we realize this and we see that uh, all these verses that show that Jesus, that he received worship, uh, when we read those verses, we have to keep other verses in mind that Uh, show that you are only supposed to worship God. For example, Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So don't worship anyone else. Don't worship any other God, but only worship the true God. And then we see Jesus being worshiped. 
Acts 10, 25 through 26. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. You get that? So don't worship men, worship God. Revelation 19.10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so this illustrates very clearly only God himself is to be worshiped. You should not worship men. You should not worship angels. You should not worship created beings. You should only worship God alone. So you, you get that I, that attitude the Bible is you know trying to get across. Uh, worship God alone. Worship Jesus. You should worship God only. You should worship Jesus. You should worship God alone. You should worship Jesus. You should worship God alone. You should worship Jesus. Do you get the point that the Bible is making here? Do you get that? That Jesus is, and to quote Thomas, Jesus is my Lord and God. Jesus is God. It's very clear that according to the Bible, Jesus is God. And now here at kgov.com, we've noticed something very interesting over the years, which is that one heresy very often leads to another. That principle especially applies here with the divinity of Christ. And for example, there is a doctrine of eternal suffering and damnation of those who who rebel against against God. That is a very fundamental very, you know, ABCs of Christianity type doctrine that if you reject God and you die, you will go to hell and you will suffer uh, in eternal damnation. You will suffer uh, for your rebellion against him. That's that's like the ABCs of Christianity. That's Christianity 101. Um, and as humans, we are created in the image and the likeness of God. And since we are created in his likeness, we are eternal beings. In fact, God, he put eternity into our hearts. The Bible says that twice, once in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that goes that God does from beginning to end. Also, we see that in Psalm 148, verses 5 and 6, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. So here we see clearly that God, he commanded that they were created, and he established them forever and ever, and this is a decree which will not pass away. As humans, the point being, as humans, we are eternal beings. Perhaps not our physical bodies, but our souls and our spirits, certainly. And now, with this, those of us who go to hell, we shall remain there for eternity. The same is true with those of us who go to heaven. Uh, but So this is part of what makes up this you know, fundamental Christian doctrine that hell is eternal is that people are eternal. And if someone is eternal and they go to hell and they're, uh, they, you can't, they can't get from hell to heaven, so they're, they are going to be in hell forever. That's Christianity 101. That's the ABCs of Christianity. 
And now when presented with this reality, we begin to understand why it is that Jesus had to go to the cross, right? He had to. This was the only way of offering us salvation. There was no other way. It had to be Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself, he asked the Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. This was the only way. And why? Why was why was this the only way? Well, because only a payment of infinite worth, something greater than the eternal futures of billions of human beings, could suffice to pay the price for our combined sin. And there is only one thing, one entity, one form that could possibly be greater than the eternal future of billions of human beings. And that one entity is God himself. That is the only possible payment that could ever suffice. A created being could not have greater value than the eternal souls of billions of image bearers. It's just not possible. A created being cannot be that valuable. And so that's why we see groups who deny the Trinity, who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of them, a lot of cults, right? Including, but not limited to uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Sun, uh, how do you say that guy's name? Sun Myung Moons, his uh, Unification Church, uh, Ronald Hubbard's, his Scientology and Christian Science and all these uh, these cults, all of them who they deny the divinity of Christ, so often they also deny the fundamental doctrine of eternal damnation. And why is that? Well, because if they accepted eternal damnation, they would know inherently, they would know that Christ's sacrifice was worth more than the eternal futures of billions of image bearers. And of course, no created being could could be worth that much. It's just not possible. And so what do they have to say? Well, they go to the logical conclusion of their position, and they say that eternal damnation is not biblical. And they are an example of this principle that one heresy leads to another. And so that it just goes to show and illustrate the dangers of rejecting the Trinity. When you reject the Trinity, which so much of Christianity is founded on so much uh, so much of Christianity crumbles when you reject that core pillar of Christianity. And so I would like to look at this from one last angle to conclude the show today. Uh, the nature of the Trinity, it fits so incredibly well with reality. And I've noticed that that if there's a theory about something and it fits like you know 800 details of re- reality, uh, that's a that's a pretty good sign that it's true. I mean, it's not like a hard and fast proof, but it, it serves to be good evidence. And so we see that with the Trinity. We see that it fits incredibly well with reality. And uh, I won't be able to get, to get into all of that today. I, I was hoping to, to finish this today, but we might have to take a third show to take a look at this. Uh, but when you look at the Trinity and you study it, you will find that there are incredible similarities between us, that is mankind, and the Trinity. I believe, this is a you know little pet theory of mine, that God designed us in a way that we might be a reflection of him. Well, that's not, the, that's not my pet theory. That's, that's Christianity. I'll get to my little pet theory here in a bit. 
Um, for example, one thing that we often hear is that Christians say that man and woman together is a reflection that serves as a reflection of God, and uh, we've been taught that one man and one woman, they will come together and become one flesh. But how could this be? What does that even mean? How could two be one? And I think that God gave us marriage as a way of helping to it, to to help us understand the Trinity and to help show us that multiple can be in one. And so in a marriage, uh, it makes sense. Two people, you have a man and a woman, two people are joined together in marriage, and they are a couple. They are a family. And so too with God, there are not two, but three people, and together they make up God. And so within a marriage, there are two who's and one what. There are two people and one marriage. So too, within God, there are three who's and one what. There are three people and one God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and together they make up God. The Trinity, it also teaches us that we are, by nature, relational creatures. God, for all eternity past, has been relational. His very nature is relational. And since we are made in his likeness, we too are relational beings. There is no escaping it. The Trinity, it also teaches us that authority does not convey value. For the Father, he has authority over the Son. The Son, he, the son, he, submitted, he submitted himself to the Father willingly, and yet the Son is no less valuable than the Father. And so a lot of people, they have trouble with submission in all areas of life. In a, a family, people have trouble with submission to the authority of the family that is the father. In a country, people, and myself included in this, have trouble with submission to the authority of the country, right? That is the government. People have trouble submitting to, to the government. I relate to that struggle. Uh, in religion, people have trouble with submission to the authority of humanity, and that is Christ. But when studying the Trinity, we see that the Son, he submits willingly to the Father. And the Son is exalted through that process. The Son receives the name, which is above every name, because of that. And so that example that, that Christ gave for us, that can teach us about our own nature. If I listen to what Paul commands, and when appropriate, I submit to the government, that will not lessen my value. It will exalt me in the eyes of the Lord for obeying what he said. When I submit to Christ, that will not lessen my value, but it, my, my value through that will actually be increased. Especially when we think about identity, when we find our identity in ourselves, uh, we're not that awesome. We're not that valuable. But when we find our identity in Christ, that is when we see that we have real, true value. And these, these things that the Trinity it teaches us, uh, they cannot be accepted by Unitarians because Unitarians, they believe that God is not eternally relational. There is no one for him to relate to for all eternity past. Uh, they can't accept these things because they believe the son was less valuable than the father. Uh, they believe that submission does entail denigration. They believe it doesn't make sense that three could be in one. 
They accept that two people can make up a marriage, but for some reason they can't accept that three people make up a Godhead. I'm not sure why. When you deny the divinity of Christ, you're denying the truth. When you deny the divinity of Christ, you are denying Christianity. Christianity. Our entire religion, Christianity, it's founded on his namesake. It's Christianity, Christianity. When you lessen his name, you lessen it all. But of course, his name is above every name. Hey, I am out of time. Make sure to like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Hit hit the notification bell. Uh, Share this video with a Unitarian. All that good stuff. Do all that. Um, Hey, I will see you guys tomorrow. I hope you guys can join me for that. We're probably going to be looking at the Trinity some more. Hey, may the Lord bless you and may he make his face to shine upon you.